We've been talking about the kingdom. We've talked about the king of the kingdom, kingdom, whole, uh, kingdom uh, single-mindedness, kingdom-centeredness, kingdom consciousness, the king of the kingdom. And I want to, this morning, speak on kingdom holiness. Kingdom holiness. And I want you to get ready for this one because this one's going to come really straight. Uh, hopefully my other ones don't come crooked, but, but uh, uh, this one's going to be right down the pipe. So I wanna, I'll get to some scriptures here in a little bit, and I, but I want to open up with a, with a word of prayer. Father, the only reason we come together is because we want to celebrate the king of the kingdom and we want to be participants in the kingdom. You're building your dome in which you are king on this earth in a mustard seed kind of way. And Father, I pray, God, that you would use this message to increasingly clarify and purify our vision for the kingdom. Depollute our thinking about the kingdom. Free us from idols that we may cling only to the king of the kingdom. We want to be holy as you are holy. And so, Father, words can't do this. We, we, uh, we need you to be present here, open our minds, open our ears. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd be working ahead of each word to collapse any lines of resistance, any strongholds that we might have in our mind that would keep us from hearing what is said or cause us to hear inaccurately what is said. We rebuke the enemy who's always trying to distort and dilute truth. Uh, Holy Spirit be doing warfare for us even as this message goes forth. And Spirit, I empower in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Uh, well, the good news is that in three days we will have no more political commercials. Hallelujah. <laughs> oh, man. I never thought I'd long to see the regular trash that we watch. Uh, but it's... it's, it's it's just bad. Yesterday alone had three phone calls uh, getting us to vote a certain way, two people knocking on my door. Uh, I, I am really tired of it, and I, I, I imagine you are too. But it will all be over soon. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, I've never seen it quite like this. I, I don't know, know about you, but, but I, I don't recall it ever being this bad. Uh, the level of intensity, the level of animosity uh, is just uh, intense. The nation is divided like never before. I just read this morning in the paper that Minnesota is right down the middle. Uh, it's, a, it's a dead heat. And uh, it's just divided. And it's not just divided kind of casually. It's divided with intensity. Now that doesn't bother me. That's kind of the way the world operates. But what really does bother me is this. Uh, that that division in the culture is to a significant degree mirrored in the world. Once again, the church mirrors the culture. And that's not how it ought to be. I've never seen the church so invested in an election in my life. I've never been bombarded. You cannot, I could not exaggerate to you the massive amount of mailings I get as a pastor about this thing and the attempts to put pressure on uh, me to uh, use the authority of the pulpit to steer people in one direction or another. I, I've never seen it so bad, and it, it frankly uh, disturbs me. I've been asked by several people uh, why I don't weigh in on this fight. I've been asked by several why I didn't join the Get Out and Vote campaign that a lot of churches in the area uh, signed up for. 
I've been asked by several people why we haven't distributed Christian voter guide pamphlets uh, helping Christians to vote. I've been asked why I haven't been shepherding God's people to vote for God's candidate, and the people who asked that apparently know who God's candidate is. And see, this goes along with uh, a kind of pattern of questions that we at the leadership of Woodland Hills gets periodically. Uh, why don't we have a flag in our auditorium or at least out in the gathering area? Most churches do. Uh, why don't we celebrate July 4th, uh, have a special service for July 4th, or at least recognize July 4th on our, the weekend service that surrounds July 4th? Why don't we ever sing patriotic songs at least once in a while? How come we don't comment on the war in Iraq and, and uh, have uh, messages that support our troops? How come we don't have people signing up for the Marriage Amendment Act and things of that sort? And you'll see what this has to do with the topic for this morning here shortly. Now, some have thought that it's uh, uh, the rumor mill I, I've, I've heard is that uh, I don't address those issues because I'm afraid of taking controversial stances. <laughs> okay, good. I, I, if you've been here for... <laughs> I have got a lot of faults, uh, but, uh, but being afraid of controversy I don't think is in the top ten list. Um, I, the reason is simply because the leadership of Woodland Hills Church doesn't believe that those issues are kingdom of God issues. Uh, when we come together, we do it to celebrate the kingdom, to proclaim the kingdom, and to learn about the kingdom, to grow in the kingdom. We don't come to celebrate or learn about America or any other nation or any national causes or to get on board with any uh, uh, political viewpoint. We don't come to pledge allegiance to our flag. We come to pledge allegiance to our Lord and Savior and to pledge our allegiance to the kingdom of God. Amen. And it turns out that this stance is actually very controversial. <laughs> it turns out this stance is not, at this present time, very popular in American evangelicalism. I have come, become convinced that the evangelical church in America, and in fact the non-evangelical church of America, has to a, a frightful degree fused the kingdom of God with our version or a particular version of the kingdom of the world. And in some circles, a certain kind of patriotism and, certain, and, and supporting certain political positions has become kind of a litmus test for whether or not you're really a Christian. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard on radio and other venues, both on the left and on the right, that you can't really consider yourself a Christian if you vote for this person or if you vote a particular way. Being American or being a certain kind of American, standing for certain things, has taken on a religious dimension to them, which has given them a lot more heat than they ought to have. It hasn't been a popular stance to take. In May, I, April and May, I preached a, a series on the cross and the sword, uh, just uh, trying to articulate the distinctness, the holiness of the kingdom of God and how it's not an aspect of any version of the kingdom of this world. And so far as we can tell, we had 500 or more people leave the church as a result of that. Well, so far as we can tell, it's from that sermon series. Either that or it was an incredible coincidence. Uh, many of the people who left told me exactly why they were leaving. One person said, uh, I and my wife need to go somewhere where the Pledge of Allegiance 
and the American flag is respected, and the truth that America is a Christian nation, one nation under God, is proclaimed with boldness. Another person said, I need to belong to a church that's proud of being American and that takes our Christian duty to be the moral conscience of our nation seriously and things of that sort. Now, in the light of uh, the, the, the fact that we're having elections here on Tuesday, and this is on everyone's mind, in the light of the ongoing questions that I and other leaders of the church uh, keep getting asked, I thought we need to address this topic again. And you may have thought that having lost 500 people in May and having to, I had our, our offerings dip 15% and having to just make cutbacks recently as a result of that, I would have the wisdom not to address this topic. But the reality is that I'm a complete idiot. You, you know that by now. The truth is that I and the leadership of Woodland Hills Church believe that the heart of the gospel, the holiness of the kingdom of God is at stake in this issue. And so we cannot help but speak on it and let the chips fall where they may. Now, I, I want to say one other preliminary word before I get into this message, and that is this. Um, experience has taught me that the culture has made such inroads on the thinking of many Christians uh, that it's impossible for some people to hear a message without politicizing it. Uh, we have so absorbed the politics of the day that some people uh, read everything in political terms. And they suspect I'm tipping my hand in a certain political direction, trying to sway things in a certain political direction by the things that I say. One person uh, in the, the spring, I, I talked about, I just asked the question really, what does it mean to love our enemies, to bless those who persecute us, and turn the other cheek when we're talking about terrorists? We, need, we just need to wrestle with that. And, and she took that as a, a subtle endorsement of, of Kerry uh, and a subtle slam on Bush. But I was just quoting Jesus. <laughs> I want, the, I want the right to be able to quote Jesus and not have someone read politics into it. And so, uh, be, I want to say it really clear here. I don't care, believe me on this, I don't have any subtle agenda, political motive for anything I'm going to say here. Uh, in fact, my point is the opposite of that. And I really don't care how you integrate your faith with your political activity this Tuesday. I don't care. And if we're thinking about things on, uh, in a kingdom manner, you shouldn't care how I do it. In fact, if after the service, because I'd never spend pulpit time to do this, but as we're out in the uh, parking lot, and you said, Greg, just tell me, okay, what, 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 what is your political leanings? If I told you I was a communist... And I thought that capitalism was an evil thing that destroys people and political freedom and illusion that the elite give us to keep us in bondage. <laughs> what would you think of that? Would it cause you to question the sincerity of my Christianity? Would it, cause, uh, would it lead to uh, me being discredited in your eyes as a preacher of the gospel? If it would, I want to suggest to you that it's possible and by the way, I'm not communist, all right? Just so put, put your gun away. Uh, but if that would cause you to discredit me in terms of the authenticity of my faith and the credibility as a preacher, I want you to consider the possibility that you have too closely fused American ideals with the kingdom of God. 
And at the end of this message, my hope is that you'll see why that is the case. I want to talk about the holiness of the kingdom of God. Let's look at a couple of passages. Matthew chapter 6. This then, Jesus says, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hagiazo is the word he uses there. Hallowed, holy is your name. Consecrated is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the, the fundamental tenor of all kingdom prayer. Let your kingdom come, your unique kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, and hallowed be your name. Uh, the word hallowed there, hagizo, means to consecrate or to separate for special purpose or for special recognition, to set something apart. That's its root meaning. The uh, noun hagios means to be holy, to be separate, to be distinct. It's the opposite of being common or worldly. God is holy because he's not common. He's not worldly. The kingdom of God is a holy kingdom because it's not common. It's distinct. It's separate from everything else you see in this world. And kingdom people are called to be holy people. We're not supposed to be common people. Uh, just going along with the herd. Our life is supposed to be distinct. It's supposed to stand out. It's supposed to, it's supposed to be separate. Everything hangs on our preserving the holiness of the kingdom of God. To not preserve the holiness of the kingdom of God, the holiness of God's name or God's character, the holiness of our lifestyle, to not do that is to desecrate it. We desecrate something when we take something that is holy and we make it something that is common. We desecrate it. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, Peter says, He who called you is holy. So be holy yourselves in all your conduct, for it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. What Peter is saying is that we are in our lifestyle to reflect God's holiness. We're to reflect God's uniqueness, God's set-apartness. As different as God is from the world, so our lifestyle is supposed to be different from the ordinary lifestyle of the world. Our life is to be separate from the world because we're consecrated to a different master. We march to the beat of a different drummer, and it's supposed to be distinctive. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, let, yourself, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house referring to the temple in the Old Testament. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are, all who align themselves with the kingdom of God are supposed to be a royal, a holy priesthood. Like the Levites in the Old Testament, who were the priests of the Old Testament, they were set apart. They didn't do what everybody else did. They were consecrated for a special service. They weren't moralistically better than anybody else, but they had a special calling on their life, a special service. They were consecrated. So also the, the, the kingdom people are, are a, uh, to be a, a kingdom of priests who are consecrated, dedicated to God. And we are therefore to live in a, in a, in a distinct kind of way. Like the priests of the Old Testament, what distinguishes us are our sacrifices. But we no longer make sacrifices the way they did in the Old Testament. We make living sacrifices, the sacrifice of our life. The way that we sacrifice of our time, our energy, our, and our resources. Uh, for those that we don't know, for those that are our friends and those that aren't our friends, the way we live sacrificially sets us apart. It's to distinguish us. It is what makes us 
a holy people, a distinct people, not a morally superior people, but a people who march to a different drummer, who are consecrated to a different purpose. And a few verses later in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, you are a chosen race. He's not talking about a certain ethnicity here. He's talking about the new human race that Jesus Christ created by dying on the cross. Uh, it says in the Ephesians chapter 2 that when he died on the cross, he tore down the wall of division that separated people, and in himself, he created one new humanity. If you wonder why we have uh, racial reconciliation as such a front-burner issue for us, it's because Jesus died for that. It is as much a part of the atonement as is uh, the forgiveness of our sins, even though it's rarely preached. He died to create one new race, and all who are kingdom people are to exemplify that new race. You're a chosen race, a set-apart race, a, a distinct group of people. You are, he says again, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's own people. You're owned by God. And the reason all that is true is so that, he says, you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Like Israel in the Old Testament that was set apart for a special purpose, and like the priests of the Old Testament who were set apart for a special purpose, we have been set apart for a special purpose. And that special purpose is very singular. It's very specified. It's to live in such a way and to talk in such a way that we proclaim the mighty acts of God, especially the act of God becoming a human being and dying on the cross for all human beings. Our life is to be such that we make that message true. We, we exemplify its true truth. We make it attractive to people. That's our one and only distinct calling. In the next verse, Peter says, once you, were, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So, beloved, I urge you, listen to this, as aliens and exiles, to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against our soul. We are God's people, which means we belong to God. We're owned by God. Our identity is to be given us by God and God alone. When that is true, we see ourselves as aliens and exiles in this world because nothing in this world gives us our identity. We belong to God. We don't belong to any nation in the sense that we should get any of our identity from our nation. We don't belong to any political ideology in the sense that any of our self-identity should wrap, be wrapped up in that, ide uh, that ideology. We're to see ourselves as aliens and exiles, foreigners, strangers, whether we live in America or whether we live in Vietnam or whether we live in Niger, Africa, we're aliens and exiles. We're, we're consecrated, set apart, made distinct in service to Jesus Christ. Which means we must wage war against the flesh. That, way, that, that the flesh wages war on us. We have to fight back and not let ourselves get pulled in by the desires of the flesh. The flesh, as we saw last week, is that false way of living. Living as though God didn't have total claims on our life. The flesh way of living is most fundamentally about living out of our own self-interest and out of our tribal interests. It's about making decisions in life on the basis of what's in it for you or what's in it for your family or what's in it for your tribe or what's in it for your nation or what's in it for your political ideology. 
We are to be people who belong to God and therefore resist the desire, the pull of the flesh to gratify ourselves. And so we're not to make decisions based on our self-interest or even on our national interest. We're to make decisions based on the kingdom of God interest and not ask what's in it for me or what's in it for my family or what's in it for my tribe or what's in it for my nation, but to ask what's in it for the kingdom of God. How do we spread the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness? We're to crucify the flesh that we can live authentically for Jesus Christ. When we do that, Paul sums up what it looks like when he says, be imitators of God. And as we've seen a number of times in this kingdom series, the word imitate, mimitai, means to mimic, to shadow. We're to do exactly what God does. We're to be his shadow, nothing more and nothing less. And when we do that, it looks like this. We live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. This is our unique calling. With every brainwave, every heartbeat, we are to live in love, manifest, receive and manifest the love of Jesus Christ. And insofar as we do that, we manifest the dome in which God is king. Here's the kingdom of God. It couldn't be more simple. Look at Jesus and look like Jesus. You look like Jesus because you're looking at Jesus. You get life from him, and then you manifest life to others. That's the kingdom of God. And if we do that consistently on a moment-by-moment basis, you will stand out in this world. Uh, you will be separate. You will be holy. In a world that is governed by people acting out of their self-interest, their national interest, you will stand out when you live for God's interest. When you live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you, it, it, it's a unique thing. It's not a common thing. It's a holy thing. And it's attractive to all people who are hungry, which is why God it tells us a number of times in the New Testament that it's by our love that people will know that he's for real and by our love that the kingdom of God will grow. Insofar as we do that, and only insofar as we do that, are we manifesting the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, as we've said many times in this series, but you can't say this enough. It always looks like Jesus Christ dying on the cross for those who crucified him. We need to lock that in. We participate in the kingdom of God insofar as we look like Jesus. We participate in the kingdom of God insofar as we wash people's feet. We participate in the kingdom of God insofar as we trust our heavenly Father to meet our earthly needs. We participate in the kingdom of God insofar as we sacrifice for the good of the kingdom, insofar as we sacrifice for others, insofar as we love our enemies, insofar as we turn the other cheek, insofar as we're aliens and foreigners in this land, insofar as we heal people's wounds, insofar as we stand out from what is common, from what is ordinary in this fallen world, to that degree... And only to that degree do we manifest the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God always looks like Jesus Christ, which means it doesn't look like America. And it doesn't look like the Democratic Party, and it doesn't look like the Republican Party. It doesn't look like the Socialist Party. It doesn't look like any governmental system you've ever seen. It doesn't look like any po political ideology you've ever learned. It doesn't look like any ethical system you've ever embraced. However good those things may be, it looks like Jesus Christ. It looks like Calvary. It looks like love. And that's why it always looks holy. It looks distinct. It looks unusual and peculiar in this world. Everything hangs on our preserving the holiness of the kingdom of God. When we don't do that, we desecrate the holiness of God's name 
giving God a bad reputation, and we desecrate the holiness of the kingdom he calls us to build. If we don't remember the distinctness of the kingdom of God, we end up forgetting that we're aliens and exiles in this world, and we end up fusing our fleshy self-interests and our fleshy national interests with, with the interests of the kingdom of God. We fuse worldly causes with kingdom of God causes. We end up Christianizing our own stuff. We Christianize our nation. We Christianize our opinions. We Christianize our political views. And we end up uh, seeing our nation as God's nation. And our opinions are God's opinions. And our wars and bloodshed are God's wars and bloodshed. And the holiness, the beauty, the distinctness of, the, of, of, of God's name and the kingdom of God is compromised in the process. Instead, listen to this, instead of belonging to God, we make God belong to us. We use God to support what we're going to believe and do anyways. We think and act and feel to the degree that we forget the holiness of the kingdom of God. We think and act and feel like normal pagan Americans acting out of their self-interest and out of their national interest. The only difference is, is that we Christianize it. We do it in Jesus' name. We desecrate the beauty of God's name and the beauty of the kingdom of God. Everything hangs on our keeping the kingdom of God holy, distinct, set apart. Even from all the stuff we think is so good. No, it's different than that. It's not just good. It's beautiful. It looks like Jesus Christ. Everything hangs on our walking as holy kingdom people, consecrated to a special service. Everything hangs on our remembering that we're aliens and exiles in this land, whether we're in America, Vietnam, China, or wherever. Now, we need to understand that we live in a war zone where there's a principality and power who is always at work in this world. Paul calls him the God of this age. And so there's a constant pull on us to desecrate God's name and desecrate the kingdom of God. There's a constant pull on us to make the kingdom of God, to reduce the kingdom of God to simply a religious version of what is already common, what is already out there. To identify the kingdom of God with what we think is good. To fuse our allegiance of Jesus, uh, to Jesus Christ with our allegiance to a nation or to a cause or to an ideology or to something else that we think is good. There's a constant pull on us to be conformed to the pattern of this world instead of transformed by the renewing of our minds into the image of Jesus Christ. There's a constant pull. There's a constant pull on Jesus throughout his ministry and there's a constant pull on us. But Jesus always resisted that pull and so must we. You see this pull on Jesus, and, and it's the same pull that's on us right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's when he's tempted by the devil. He says this in Luke chapter 4. Then the devil led him up and showed Jesus in an instant all the kingdoms of the world, all the kingdoms of the world. I suspect America was in that because we're part of the kingdom of the world. And the devil said to him, to you, to you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I can give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, I'll let it all be yours. Now, there's two things I want us to see from this. Number one, um, uh, Jesus doesn't dispute that, in fact, Satan has all the kingdoms of the world. All the kingdoms of the world. Some are no doubt relatively better than others, but all of them are under the authority of Satan. Jesus doesn't dispute that. Uh, because it's, it's, a, it's a biblical truth. You find that all over the place in the New Testament. All, 1 John 5, 19, he has control of the entire world. Uh, he, he doesn't dispute that. Which alone, kingdom people, 
that must mean that we have to keep a healthy distance. Never, never get too close to, to any nation, uh, wherever you're located. Because however good it might be, you know that there's a sinister force polluting it. Uh, we, we can never get, we must never lose our critical prophetic distance from any version of the kingdom of the world. It is under the bondage to Satan. The second thing is this. Jesus resisted this temptation. Now, it wouldn't have been a genuine temptation unless there was some good in it. What was the good in this? Well, think about it. If, in fact, Jesus had all the authority of the kingdoms of the world, he was the ruler of the world. Okay, granted, he'd have to submit to Satan, but he gets to be boss of this world. Think of the good he could have done. Think of the immediate relief to suffering he could have brought. He could have brought all the right laws and all the right ideas and all the political, right political views and, and all the right policies and set in place all the right people. He, he could have vastly improved the world and done it immediately. He could have immediately alleviated the suffering of those he loved, his mother and his brother and other Jews who were under the oppression of the Romans. He could have immediately relieved that. A lot of good could have been done if only he would have submitted, but he wouldn't do it. He wanted all the kingdoms of the world. He's going to get all the kingdoms of the world, but he's not going to do it by having power over them. Rather, he's going to do it in a holy way, a distinct way, an unusual way, a way that's totally uncommon. In fact, we've never seen it before. He's going to allow the kingdom of the world to crucify him. And by the love that he displays, he's going to, by exercising power under, by coming under the world, he's going to win the world to himself. That's the holiness of the kingdom of God. He doesn't want to conquer the world. He wants to save the world, transform the world from the inside out. What it tells us is that Jesus didn't come into the world to give us a new and improved version of the kingdom of the world. He didn't come to give us the best version of the kingdom of the world. He came to plant an entirely different kind of kingdom, a holy kingdom, a distinct kingdom that doesn't look like anything, any version of the kingdoms of this world. He resisted the temptation to gain power now in the name of an immediate good in order to allow himself to be crucified and display love for a long-term gain, bringing the kingdom of God throughout the whole world. Now, tragically, and we've got to learn from history, tragically, the church has more often than not succumbed to the very temptation that Jesus resisted. In the name of doing an immediate good thing, we've abandoned doing the kingdom of God thing. Beginning in the 4th century, when the church first got political power, then was made the official religion of the Roman Empire, then after the fall of Rome, got all the political power. It was under its jurisdiction. Uh, uh, St. Augustine said, well, God has given us the sword, and therefore we have an obligation to use the sword wisely. And how fortunate it is for the world, because we know God's will, and we are holy people, and so we know what is best for people. How fortunate for the world that we are now in charge. How, how much good we can do in the world. And for the next 1,300 years, what you get is a massive history of barbaric bloodshed. Where the church, Christians fought Christians. When you pick up the sword, you die by the sword. Christians fought Christians. The Greek Orthodox fought the Catholics. The, they both fought the Protestants. The Lutherans fought the, 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 the Calvinists. They all put the Anabaptists to death. It was massive bloodshed. They fought the Jews. They, they fought the Muslims. They burned the heretics. They hung the witches. It's a massive history of barbaric bloodshed. Millions were slaughtered. In the name of the one who taught us to turn the other cheek, we cut off people's heads. In the name of the one who taught us to love those who persecute us, we became the persecutors. 
And this was not the kingdom of God. And when we came over here to the new world, we carried out that same mindset. In the name of building a Christian nation, we slaughtered millions upon millions of Native Americans, but we did it in Jesus' name to build a Christian nation. This is not the kingdom of God. It does not look like Calvary. There's nothing holy about this. It, it's, it's your common, ordinary, kingdom of the world kind of barbaric uh, way of operating. It's just, it's just what you get. All nations conquer other nations in the name of their tribal God. And that's, that's what happened here. But there's nothing holy about it. It doesn't look like Jesus Christ. It doesn't look like service. It doesn't look like love. And the lesson we've got to learn, if not from the Bible, then get it from history. And it's this. When the kingdom of God isn't kept distinct... When, it, when its holiness, its uniqueness is not preserved, it ends up being just another barbaric version of the kingdom of the world. Never once has there been accept, an exception to this truth. Desecrating the holiness of the kingdom of God is the devil's main strategy for destroying the church. If you want to destroy the church, put it in charge. When you pick up the sword, you put down the cross, and the kingdom of God is all about the cross. Look at every single nation that Christians have ever conquered and ruled. Look at it today. Look throughout Europe. The church is all but non-existent there, and anyone will tell you that those lands are far more resistant to the gospel today than countries that have never heard the gospel. The devil's strategy works. We've got to resist the temptation for seizing power over others. We've got to resist the temptation to desecrate the holy name of God. We've got to keep God's name holy and the kingdom of God holy. Everything depends on this. Our holy authority, it's distinct. It's not like any kind of authority in the world. Our holy authority is not our ability to get our way. Our holy authority is our willingness to defer to others in service to others. Our job, kingdom people, get this, our job is to look like Jesus. Our job is not to control the world. Our job is not to fix the world. Our job is not to legislate the world. Our job is not to judge the world. Our job is not to police the morality of the world. Jesus never did that. He never did that. And our job is to look like Jesus. Our job is to serve the world, to sacrifice for the world, to wash the feet of the world, to love even our enemies. That's our unique kingdom authority. Now, as American citizens, those of you who are American citizens, they ask your opinion about how the government should be run. Give it. And some of you maybe feel called to run for office. I bless you. That's a one, if that's how God leads you, go for it. But never forget that your distinct holy authority doesn't lie in the power of your vote or the power of your office. It lies in your willingness to bleed for others. It lies in your, in, in your uh, willingness to defer. Uh, our allegiance to Jesus Christ must be, this is the word, incomparably greater than our allegiance to our nation or our allegiance to our political party or our allegiance to our own opinions, incomparably greater. Never forget that you're aliens and exiles in the world. Jesus never let himself get, 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 get sucked in to the thinking of the kingdom of the world. People were, in his day, it was a political hot time. People were always trying to pull him in to the politics of, of his age, to define his mission in terms of the kingdom of the world. He never let, let them do that. 
Uh, the Jews were oppressed by the Romans, and politics was more hotly debated than it is even in our country right now. Uh, and people had a lot of opinions about how the government should be run and what the Jewish response should be to uh, the Romans, and they were always trying to pull Jesus in to that quagmire of, of messy, divisive options. And Jesus always resisted. One of the hottest topics was taxes. They said to Jesus a number of times, Should we pay taxes? And they said that because they know that whatever Jesus says, he's going to lose two-thirds of his audience because the thing is so, so divisive. So should we pay taxes to the Romans or not? Some think we should just to preserve law and order. Others say no because they're an un, uh, ungodly uh, nation and therefore we have a moral responsibility to not pay taxes and, and, be, uh, and resist this. And there's a lot of options in between. So they try to lure Jesus in on this. What's God's opinion on the tax question? What's the Christian response to the tax question? And Jesus never bites the bait. At one point they said, should we pay taxes or not? And he holds up a coin. He says, well, who, whose face is that? And he said, well, it's the emperor's face, of course. And so Jesus says, well, if it's got his image on it, I guess it belongs to him. Give to Caesar what must belong to Caesar. Now, some people have thought, I've heard this just recently, they, they said, well, that's a command. We're, we're commanded to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, which means that Christians have a uh, Christian responsibility to vote. And I suggest to you that whatever you think about a Christian's responsibility to vote or not to vote, you can't get it from this passage. Because the point is the exact opposite. Jesus holds it up. Now, you've got to know this. Uh, the Jews of the day thought any kind of image of a person was idolatry, certainly made of metal. Uh, in, in some areas, we know in the Roman Empire, the, the emperor wouldn't pay, put their image on a coin because it would cause Jews to riot. They were offended by the arrogance and the idolatry of an emperor putting his image on a coin. So Jesus holds up and says, oh, whose idolatrous uh, picture is this? And, you know, you all know you're offended by this, but well, whose is this? And they say, well, it's Caesar's. He says, well, if it's got his image on it, I guess it belongs to him. Now, if you took that literally, you'd give all your money to Caesar because his picture is on all of it. <laughs> but that's not the point Jesus is making. He's really saying this. Are, are we going to fight about how much of this idolatrous garbage we should keep or give back? Is this what should define us? Here's what should define us. In the next sentence, he says, give to Caesar whatever belongs to him. You figure it out. But give to God what belongs to God. Uh, if the image of Caesar means it belongs to Caesar, the image of God means it belongs to God. And every Jew knew and every kingdom person must know that you're made in the image of God. The only image of God on the planet is a human being. And if you've got his image, you must belong to him. What Jesus is saying is this. The, 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 the consecrated holy mission that I'm here for isn't about solving your questions on taxes. It's to ask you a question. Are you surrendered to God? Are you given to God all that is yours? Jesus didn't come into this world to answer our many, many problematic, ambiguous, and difficult questions about how the world should be run. He didn't come here to answer our questions. He came here to force us to answer his question, and his question is this. Do you belong to God? Are you giving God your all? Are you surrendered to God? Do you want to be consecrated to the holy God and help build a holy kingdom? That's the kingdom of God question. He wouldn't let himself get sucked into the ambiguities of the world. Tragically, the church has usually allowed itself to get sucked into the kingdom of the world. And to a large degree, it's doing it today. The world gives the questions, and now we think it's our job to give God's opinion on the answers. To give the Christian answers. Is God for taxes or against taxes? 
Or is it somewhere in between? Is God, is God for the war or is God against war? What's God's opinion? Our job is to give that. Is God for the Democratic candidate or the Republican candidate? Our job is to uh, uh, give God's opinion. Uh, is God for capitalism or is God for communism? Is God pro-life or is God pro-choice? Does God think the civil definition of marriage should include or exclude gays? What's the Christian answer to this? And I don't care what you think about that. What I want to say to you is this. Those are not distinctly kingdom of God questions. The kingdom of God question is this. How do we love outrageously the person who believes in paying taxes and the person who doesn't believe in paying taxes? How do we love and serve uh, the, 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 the Republican and the Democrat? How do we love the capitalist and the communist? How do we love and sacrifice for American soldiers and Iraqi soldiers? How do we love and come under and serve the woman who's got an unwanted pregnancy? How do we love the heterosexuals? And how do we come under and serve the homosexuals and the transvestites and the bisexuals and every other category you could come up with? The kingdom question is how do we serve? How do we love? How do we love our friends and our enemies? How do we serve the Hmong community around here? That's a kingdom of God question. How do we sacrifice for our small group? That's a kingdom of God question. How do we help out kids who have to go to school in dilapidated inner city schools? That's a kingdom of God question. How do we enter into solidarity with people who are suffering racial oppression? That's a kingdom of God question. How do we, how do we live in such a way that people might actually want to start believing in Jesus Christ? That the, the love of Jesus Christ is attractive? That's a kingdom of God question. And when we live in that question, it's holy, it's unique, it's distinct, and it's attractive to all who are hungry. When we buy into the world's limited and divisive and shallow options that are given us, and we let them define a thing, when we buy into that, the kingdom begins to look kind of ugly. We desecrate the name of God, and we desecrate the holiness of the kingdom of God. The hope of the world does not lie in how you're going to answer these ambiguous questions on Tuesday or even if you're going to answer these questions on Tuesday. The hope of the world isn't found in our opinions about these divisive questions. The hope of the world is found in us answering God's question. Do, do, does he have all of us? It lies in people who, who are willing to serve rather than be served. It lies in people who are willing to love their enemies rather than retaliate with violence. It lies in people who are willing to wash the feet of prostitutes and, and, and those who might persecute them. That's the hope of the world. It lies in people who are willing to trust God to use power under like Jesus did rather than power over like Caesar does. The kingdom of the world is as different, the kingdom of God is as different, as distinct from the kingdom of the world, every version of the kingdom of the world. It's as distinct as God is different from the world. It's as distinct as Jesus is from Caesar. It's as distinct as the cross is from the sword. I'll end with this. Um, you know, Jesus, when he was putting together his, his entourage, uh, he, uh, he called a Matthew and he called a Simon, right next to each other. Matthew was a tax collector, which was the conservative of the conservatives. They, they worked for the status quo and defended the status quo. Simon was a zealot. They were the liberals of the liberals. They, they, they assassinated tax collectors. <laughs> and he calls them both and says, follow me. And what is absolutely amazing is that we don't read one word about what Jesus thought about those various options. Who's more right? Come on, Jesus, tip your hand. You don't, you don't find a word about it. You don't find any discussion of this. They probably had some interesting fireside chats. But see, what that silence in the gospel screams to us is this. That, that uh, uh, when you have Jesus in common and you're working together to build the kingdom of God, 
The difference between a Matthew and a Simon is minuscule. It's irrelevant. It, it doesn't even warrant a comment. And how indicting it is on the church today. We who call ourselves the body of Christ. That Jesus could, could bring a Matthew and a Simon together and they worked to build the kingdom of God side by side. But we think that if you vote for the Democratic candidate, you can't call yourself a Christian. Or if you vote for the Republican candidate, you can't call yourself a Christian. Or if you vote for Nader or the Socialist Party, you can't call yourself a Christian. And the difference between a Democrat and a Republican is infinitesimally less than the difference between a Simon and a Matthew. The difference between a Simon and a Matthew, it's greater even than the difference between a Rush Limbaugh or Lumbaugh and a communist. And there's room in the kingdom for both. Because the kingdom is not about your opinion of how the world should run. The kingdom of God is about our willingness to sacrifice for others. If I told you after service that I was a communist, you maybe would be puzzled. Like, huh. And maybe you'd want to, you know, our attitude should be, that's odd. Uh, but instead of thinking I'm evil, say, well, why would you think that? Maybe you'll learn something. Maybe I'll learn something from you. But, but if, you're will, if you call Christ Lord and you're willing to work side by side with me to feed those homeless people, you know what? They don't care whether you're communist or, or, or a conservative capitalist. They don't care. And neither, neither does God. We work together to serve. That's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God. Right, whatever you do on Tuesday, never forget that that's not your unique kingdom authority. Give to Caesar what you think belongs to Caesar's. You're adults. Uh, integrate your faith with your vote or lack of vote. Uh, as you feel called. I, I'm not going to shepherd you on that, but I will shepherd you on every other second of your life. Live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you. I want to end this way. Um, the altar will be open after the service. If, you, if you're here with any burden, any need that you would like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward and get that prayer. If you want to sign up for this radical, radical holy, countercultural kingdom, uh, you want to submit your life to Jesus Christ, to my right and your left, we have a table, and there'll be a person who would be happy to explain to you how to do that. I, I want to end with a very short benediction. Can we stand? Um, I want us to pledge allegiance to the cross. And uh, this maybe will offend some people. That would be a shocker. Uh, but, but, you know, if it offends you, let it question. Let it open up the possibility that you're, you've clo too closely fused the kingdom of the world with the kingdom of the cross. Because our allegiance to Christ must be incomparably greater than our allegiance to anything else. So this has the same cadence as the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, but it's to the cross. Can we all, all, all say it as a prayer together? I pledge allegiance to the cross of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, and to the kingdom for which it stands, one royal priesthood under God, indivisible, with love and the hope of salvation for all. Let's say it again, but with passion. I pledge allegiance to the cross of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, and to the kingdom for which it stands, one royal priesthood under God, indivisible, with love and the hope of salvation for all. Go out and be kingdom people. Amen. Yeah.